I am announcing that the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Control Board, the AGLC, will put an immediate halt to the import of BC wine into Alberta. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley turning up the heat in her battle with BC over the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Breaking details tonight in what's turning into a trade war between B.C. and Alberta over pipeline expansion. Rachel Notley retaliating against B.C.'s wine industry over the Horgan government's decision to try to limit the flow of bitumen through this province. Keith Baldry reports. This is one good step to waking B.C. up to the fact that they can't attack our industry without a response from us. And so Alberta has dramatically raised the stakes in its feud with B.C. over the Kinder Morgan pipeline. If B.C. says no pipeline, Alberta is saying no B.C. wine. But let me be clear. Albertans didn't want or invite this fight. In Alberta, we play by the rules. And we did play by the rules. And we secured the approval of a new pipeline to Tidewater to export energy products that support tens of thousands of jobs across this country. Any Alberta ban of B.C. wine could have significant impact on the industry. Every year, about 17.2 million bottles of B.C. wine are sold in Alberta, generating $70 million in sales. Even the Calgary Flames NHL team's official wine is made in the Okanagan. B.C.'s agriculture minister was taken aback by today's move, saying it's going to hurt B.C.'s wineries. It would be quite devastating for our producers. And B.C. vintners are bracing for the impact. That's the second biggest uh, revenue stream next to B.C. itself. So this is a big effect to us. I think they're making a a bold move that that makes an impact, and uh, it would cripple us. Having the small guys paying the price for some politicians which cannot... uh, do their feeling um, that they're they're caught in the crosshairs, and so it's not fair. One thing for sure that we will we will fight for our wineries in Alberta. We don't back down. This is our economy. These are our jobs. It's also our country, and Albertans' rights and Canadians' rights must be respected. All right, Keith Baldry joins us from Victoria now with more on this. Keith, any idea when or if this is going to end? Uh, well, it sounds like it's going to escalate, uh, as a matter of fact, Sophie. Uh, John Horgan releasing a statement today saying, look, if Alberta, Alberta has trouble on this, go to court. You know, we'll see you in court. That's the way to fight this. And he's promising some unspecified response in the days ahead. Uh, but I want you to listen again to Rachel Notley at the end of her news conference talking about escalating things herself, about what other things Alberta might be looking at. Here's another beverage of choice that Rachel Notley's talking about. Right now, uh, Alberta imports a heck of a lot of beer from B.C. And uh, it it would not actually be a bad thing for Alberta should um, uh, more Alberta beer be drunk. So that is a thing that we're also looking at right now. So beer could be the next on the, on the hit list for the Notley government. The B.C.'s craft beer industry, of course, a, a very successful one. Uh, again, this shows no signs of stopping. This is just the beginning, I think, of a fight that's going to get probably quite ugly. Eventually, we'll get into the court system, Sophie. But until we get there, I think there's a lot of nervousness in the, in the B.C.'s wine industry and probably now in B.C.'s cottage brewery industry as well.
All right, we'll see who makes the next move. Keith, thank you. <laughs> now to the other big story of the day. The NDP government making major changes to the way ICBC pays out accident victims, trying to stop the financial bleeding at the beleaguered insurance corporation. Starting next year, the province will cap compensation for pain and suffering from minor injuries at $5,500. The government says the average cost right now is 16500 The province claiming the cap will save ICBC one billion dollars. The issue of capping payouts has already been the focus of an aggressive PR campaign arguing against it. And not surprisingly, a lot of people are crying foul. But as Tetranecki reports, the government is also increasing other payments. And the carnage keeps piling up, as do the claims to ICBC and the legal fees that go with them. So today, the NDP, as promised, announced changes to the way claims are processed. As of April 1st, 2019, a new limit of $5,500 on pain and suffering awards for minor injury claims will be in effect, redirecting costs currently spent on legal fees, courts and litigation, towards direct care of those injured in crashes. The key is what constitutes a minor injury. A sprain, whiplash, or sore back would qualify. Broken bones would not. But that, say trial lawyers, just opens up a whole new level of litigation for the rich and none for the poor. What's going to happen here is tens of thousands of British Columbians are going to have to trust in ICBC and their medical advisors to decide whether or not their injuries are minor when they've been hurt through the reckless driving of someone else. So what this government is doing is shifting the responsibility from bad drivers and bad government and bad ICBC management onto victims of negligence. And that's deeply distressing. The province also announced it will immediately increase benefits to people injured more seriously for lost wages, health care and rehabilitation, in some cases doubling those benefits. But critics like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation believe what's really needed here is competition. Right now we're in a government forced monopoly. We have no choice whatsoever and we pay the highest cost in all of Canada. That's not fair. Doctors will be allowed to decide the seriousness of an injury and if there's a disagreement it'll go to a new independent resolution process. The province believes it can save about a billion dollars a year with these changes. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A bittersweet day for family and friends of a 48-year-old Maple Ridge woman who died last September on the Lougheed Highway. As Tanya Beja reports, RCMP have arrested and charged a man in connection with the head-on hit-and-run that killed the mother of three and grandmother of two. She was doing what she loved to do. She loved her Harley. Laura jeglam was riding her motorcycle last September when she was struck and killed by an oncoming car. The driver fled the scene. The past five months has been a very difficult and devastating time for us. With these arrests, we hope that we can finally start the healing process and start to pick up the pieces. 33-year-old Ryan Lowe is facing eight charges, including dangerous driving and impaired driving causing death, as well as failing to remain at the scene following the collision. His brother Robert is also charged with obstructing a peace officer. To finally get the news that the arrests have been made has been a relief but doesn't make the loss of Laura any better. Early in the investigation, police found an abandoned Pontiac Sunfire they believed was involved. Officers spent the next five months sifting through hundreds of hours of surveillance video to identify a suspect. This was a very technically driven investigation, which requires a significant amount of time that led us to these um, charges being laid. 
Jeglin Wojciechin's relatives packed into the police briefing, wearing a message for the accused and a warning for all drivers. If there's anything I can say to people out there, next time you're having a drink, next time you want to go out to pass somebody where maybe you shouldn't, please think twice. Because small details like that can devastate more people than you know. The family, thankful for the arrest, say they're now preparing for what will likely be a very emotional trial. Tanya Beja, Global News. Riveting testimony today at the public inquest into the fatal police shooting of a mentally ill man in Vancouver back in 2014. Rumina Dea is in Burnaby. And Rumina, we heard for the first time from one of the officers who confronted Tony Dew. Sophie, with tears in his eyes, VPD Constable Trevor Letourneau turned to Dew's family and told them he was sorry for their loss. On the stand, he described chilling details of what happened more than three years ago. Yeah, he got a big stick, Minutes after the 911 call, Vancouver police arrive at 41st and Knight Street. Constable Trevor Letourneau testifying at the coroner's inquest that he made eye contact with 51-year-old Tony Dew, who was holding a 2 by 4 The weapon, a beanbag shotgun, a less lethal option. Constable Letourneau told the jury he yelled at Dew to put the 2 by 4 down. But he didn't. He ultimately fired six beanbag rounds. Du, who suffered from schizophrenia, kept advancing, he said. That's when Constable Peters fired three shots with his pistol. He had the 2 by 4 on his shoulder. Then he took it underneath his armpit and he basically pointed it at them like this. Witness Joe Tobias told us despite Du's agitated state, in his opinion, Du was not a danger and police could have spent more time talking him down. I spent five minutes standing next to this gentleman, Mr. Dew, and uh, I never felt threatened, not one bit. Constable Letourneau said there was no time to communicate with Dew. He attacked. The IIO determined police killed Dew less than 30 seconds after arriving on scene. The independent police watchdog reviewed the case, but no charges were recommended. The inquest into Dew's death continues tomorrow. These are not criminal proceedings. It's not about finding fault. It's about making recommendations to prevent a similar death in the future. Sophie. All right, Rumina Dea in Burnaby, thank you. Police are investigating the discovery of human remains in Abbotsford. The bones were found in a field in the 1600 block of Riverside Road. Members of the police forensic ID unit and the coroner's office are now trying to determine the identity of the person and the cause of death. Anyone with information is asked to contact Abbotsford police or Crime Stoppers. The whale-watching tragedy off the coast of Tofino that killed six tourists in 2015 could change the way owners of large vessels operate. As Kylie Stanton explains, the B.C. Coroner Service has made two recommendations after its investigation into the sinking of the Leviathan II, one of them applying to life jackets. When this whale-watching vessel capsized off Tofino, it went down in minutes. All 27 people on board were thrown into the frigid water. Six didn't survive. Now, more than two years later, the BC Coroner's Service is releasing its report into their deaths. The six deaths were related to drowning um, as a result of saltwater immersion. 
uh, the deaths were deemed accidental. To prevent something like this from happening again, the BC Coroner's Service has put forward two recommendations to Transport Canada, requiring that life jackets be worn by all passengers on the outer decks of vessels greater than 15 gross tons carrying more than 12 passengers, and to review the regulations regarding emergency position indicating radio beacons with consideration for expanding the class of vessels required to carry these devices. It goes a step further than the Transportation Safety Board's report where mandatory life jackets were not recommended. PFDs, if they're worn inside a vessel, could actually contribute to uh, people being trapped inside the vessel. And there are questions surrounding what this might mean for BC Ferries. We are seeking clarification from Transport Canada that if this recommendation were to be implemented, uh, that it wouldn't include larger vessels like ferries. In a statement, Transport Canada says the department will consult with stakeholders on life jacket requirements and consider factors including vessel size to determine next steps. These are our flotation suits. But many in the industry are already taking extra precautions. Well, of course, safety is always the first thing we have to consider. We've got people's lives at stake. We uh, are very strict in, in how we operate. Jamie's whaling station, the operator of the vessel when it went down, has also overhauled its procedures and practices while communicating with members of the industry to make broader changes. We like to see collaboration and and agencies that are involved um, making improvements because ultimately our mandate is to try and improve safety here in British Columbia. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Right now, though, you think Vancouver traffic is the worst? Turns out it's not really that bad, according to a new ranking of traffic around the world. This year's INRIX Global Traffic Scorecard puts Vancouver at 203rd among more than 1,300 cities worldwide. Los Angeles is ranked as the number one congested city in the world. Drill down to North America, and Vancouver is 37th out of 319 cities. Vancouver isn't even the worst in Canada, coming in at number five, behind Montreal, Toronto, St. John's, Newfoundland, and Ottawa. Well, parking in a busy Vancouver neighborhood is about to become a lot more challenging. Grace Key is live tonight in Yelltown with the details on the city's plan to eliminate dozens of parking spots. Grace. Yeah, just here in Yaletown now, the firefighters are saying that they're certainly having some challenges getting their fire trucks through these narrow streets. They say it's been a problem for some time now, but because of the densification and more traffic, their call volumes are also going up. Now, they realize this is not the ideal situation. The city, of course, expected to lose some revenue generated from the lots and merchants speaking out about their concern with the loss of business. If you think finding a parking spot around Yaletown is a challenge, it's about to get even worse. There are plans to eliminate five blocks of angled spots along Hamilton and Mainland because fire trucks are having a tough time getting through the narrow heritage streets. That's up to 80 spots gone. Well, we've said remove the parallel parking. Keep the angled parking. That creates the six metres the firemen need. Uh, the city has said, yep, it creates that. We don't like that. We'd rather have the other side of the street. City engineering looked at every possible configuration to get us the space we needed. Um, they looked at uh, having parallel on both sides, removing the parallel because that's less impactful to the total number of parking spaces. Uh, but none except this one were able to get us the space we needed. And then all the way out. 
For the 900 businesses here, owners fear the loss of parking spaces will drive customers away. Bond Chiropractic offers specialized prenatal and pediatric care to patients who drive in from outside the area. A lot of um, moms are pregnant and they also have strollers. And so parking close to the office space is really essential. The new patio at the Flying Pig restaurant was built in September and may never seat a customer. The owners are hoping for some clarification after this $80,000 investment that includes changes to the kitchen, additional staff, and a liquor license. To top it off, the owners weren't the ones who came up with the idea of a patio. The city came to us and the, and the Yale Town Business Association approached us, so we were really excited. It was kind of like we won the lottery, um, and maybe now we lost the lottery. The BIA says there was a lack of consultation. They were notified in January. Changes could be made as early as March. The city believes it could add about 40 spaces back into the area. The city, uh, through Easy Park, is making more parking available in the neighborhood. So there's, uh, there's some new spaces that can be made available in an existing parking lot. So we're just in front of Parlor Restaurant, where Parlor and West Oak did call a sort of a last-minute emergency meeting with all some of the restaurant and bar owners here. They say they plan to fight this. They plan to get a lawyer as well. Now, there is also going to be a public meeting that's going to be on February 22nd at the Roundhouse Community Center. Sophie? All right, thanks for that, Grace Key in Yelltown tonight. A Hollywood director with a Vancouver connection is stepping up to help save an iconic East Van Theatre. Kevin Smith, known for the 1994 indie film Clerks, tweeted his support for the Rio Theater, which is under threat of development. The Vancouver Film School dropout is in town directing a TV series and is offering to do a benefit screening to raise money for the Rio. The building that houses the Rio is up for sale and the operator wants to buy it to keep the theater a part of the community. So I've not only seen wicked independent films there, but I've performed at that space. And it's an amazing space. Um, it has a lot of great memories for not just me, but a lot of people that live here in Vancouver. So I feel like, you know, if we can do anything to keep those doors open, it's a shame most of the art houses have gone the way of the dinosaur. So this is one that's still around and still functioning. So if we can do anything to bring attention to it, maybe keep those doors open, that'd be a positive thing. The Vancouver SPCA is appealing for your help tonight to help this guy recover. Tank, a two-and-a-half-year-old boxer, is all skin and bones at less than half his ideal weight. He also has pressure sores and a foreign object lodged in his intestines, which will require surgery to remove. Tank is the subject of an ongoing cruelty investigation. Donations are needed to help with his medical care, which is expected to cost around $9,000. Once he's healthy, he will be adopted out to a forever home. Well, the Fed's unveiling a proposal today for broad changes to the Fisheries Act. The Liberal government says it's restoring cuts made by the Tories. As Linda Aylesworth reports, over the next five years, more than $280 million will be spent to enforce new laws protecting habitat wherever fish are present. It's been six years since Canada's Fisheries Act was gutted by the past federal conservative government. That meant protections for all but the most commercially valuable fish were tossed out. You can't just manage salmon and the herring that that salmon eats. You need to manage what the herring eats. And that sort of concept of managing the ecosystem was completely lost from the act during the Harper regime. Also lost the jobs of hundreds of fisheries scientists and conservation officers. As for protecting habitat from development... The measures in 2012 were uh, basically stripping out the requirement for any projects, any developments, any activities to 
undergo federal review. For years, conservation groups have been hoping for change, and today it came in the form of a bill to amend the Fisheries Act. Once passed, this legislation will restore loss protections so that all fish and fish habitat are protected. Along with restoring habitat protections, rebuilding depleted fish stocks like Chinook salmon, which our southern resident killer whales feed on. That can be the turning point where we go from depletion of our ocean resources to restoration of our ocean resources. Nearly $285 million would be invested in restoring loss protections. That includes the hiring of more fisheries officers to enforce the new laws. Come on! Come on! Of course, to some, today's announcement is at odds with the federal push to expand the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which would result in a seven-fold increase in oil tankers in our waters. Even so, it's a move in the right direction. It's not law yet. It's only a bill that's been tabled. It will go through committee readings, and I'm sure there'll be lots of pushback against some of the provisions in it, but we're hopeful that the government will be able to, uh, to pass it more or less intact. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Panic inside a multi-story hotel in Taiwan after a major earthquake. The ground floor of the Marshall Hotel caved in, killing one employee and trapping others inside. Rescue teams carefully entered the hotel to search for survivors. A neighboring hotel is still tilting after the magnitude 6.4 quake, which struck near the coast of Taiwan. Another person died in a residential building and more than 200 others are hurt. The shaker follows a series of earthquakes off Taiwan's east coast on Sunday night. Well, imagine finding an image of yourself online on a fake Twitter page with a fake name. It happened to a Vancouver woman. And as John Hua reports, she was alerted to the fraud by a U.S. master's student researching Twitter bots and their role in sharing information on the Russian influence in American media. Meet Cheryl Montgomery of Marlton, New Jersey. She likes to tweet about U.S. politics and is just happy to get through the day. But that's not her only issue. Catherine Simpson, nice to meet you. Turns out Cheryl Montgomery is a Twitter bot that stole a picture from this Vancouver public relations professional. I said, no way. I'm typing it in and there's my picture. Simpson contacted by an investigative journalist from Columbia University looking into the Twitter bot trend. The use of automated social media accounts in uh, spreading political messages in the U.S. This particular bot seems to be pro-Hillary Clinton, anti-President Donald Trump. While Carr is looking into links to Russia, it seems Cheryl Montgomery was likely born in the USA. You can go online and Google how to make a bot and have one online in two hours. The tweets from this bot relatively tame. Social media experts say more radical messaging can cause bigger problems for the real person in the picture. People have believed that the individual was the one behind the keyboard and they've actively looked to find the person. And unfortunately, that Internet vigilante justice piece kind of rears its ugly head. If it was somebody who was retweeting on Canadian politics or local politics, I would have been much more concerned. Simpson has contacted Twitter hoping to get the account taken down. A much harder process than stealing someone's picture. I've sent them my driver's license. I've sent them all sorts of information, but I'm not really having any luck with them. Experts say it's important to flag it anyways and be selective of who can see your pictures online. Or that favorite shot might be the new face of a Twitter bot. John Hua, Global News. 
In health news tonight, there are new concerns about drinking during pregnancy. A study published in the Journal of, a journal of the American Medical Association suggests more children are affected by fetal alcohol syndrome than previously thought. Researchers at the University of California in San Diego assessed more than 6,000 U.S. first graders and found the number of kids with alcohol-related disorders was up to five times higher than past estimates. Fetal alcohol syndrome can cause irreversible brain damage and growth problems. Well, sometimes you just can't resist. While its owners were out, a dog going for the food left on the stove. How this snack grab fired or backfired, I should say, right after the weather forecast. I think you can see how that one ends. And back in B.C., a shoe swap dog is helping her owners battle winter. Meet Morgan of Sunnybrae near Salmon Arm. After about a month of training, the six-year-old Newfoundland is an old pro at driving Dean and Grace Edwards' snowblower. And when she doesn't feel like riding the machine, she knows how to snow shovel her weight, nearly 130 pounds of it, around the driveway. Morgan also helps her owners out around the house, fetching beer from the fridge and grabbing pretzels from the cupboard. But does she grab Lady Doritos? We will examine <laughs> that coming up. First, though, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us in lots of winter weather coming. That's right. So Morgan's going to be busy, busy. Here's a look. Actually, Morgan's just south of the warnings, but there is some snow expected there. But the winter storm warning extends through much, basically two-thirds of the province, from the inland sections of the north coast all the way down into the Shuswap, North Thompson region, and over towards the North Columbia area as well. Now, in the West Columbia region, it's mainly higher levels that will see these significant amounts 30 to 50 mil or sorry centimeters of snow by the end of the day tomorrow so an incredible amount of snow and it's all because of this big plume of moisture that's pushing on shore and we still have that arctic front entrenched so all these areas from this front uh, north and west sorry east are seeing that cold air and that's why they're seeing significant snow meanwhile across the southwest it is mild and we're seeing the rainfall but here's a look at the regions that we'll see the most significant snow all the way along Highway 16 into Prince George, extending into the Caribou East regions as well, uh, Yellowknife and Yellowhead down towards the Columbia region as well. These numbers here aren't necessarily exact, but it gives you an idea of the areas that will get hit hardest from Terrace, extending down into Prince George, Burns Lake certainly as well, Quinnell, Williams Lake seen it, and over towards Valemont and down into Revelstoke. But again, mainly in through these regions from, from Sycamus over towards Revelstoke and Golden, it's the higher mountain passes that will see the most significant amounts. But lower down, you'll see snowfall, but maybe not quite as much. So major snowstorm on the way. It starts right now, and it goes right through until the end of the day tomorrow. Meanwhile, if you're along the north coast, uh, you will see periods of rain. It's further inland, terraced uh, towards Stewart as well, that have that snowfall uh, expected. Now, all the way down through the south, you can see some of these areas will warm up enough that it will change over to wet snow. So you'll see the significant amounts overnight and through the morning hours, and then it changes over to rain or wet snow. South coast regions, a bit of a dry patch for us tomorrow morning. Still overcast skies, but the rain returns tomorrow afternoon. The bright spot is towards the weekend. So Thursday, we start to dry out, but certainly Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, those are the days you have to look forward to. Although overnight, it will be chilly and frosty, that's for sure. Happy birthday to Nora Parsons. 
person. Apparently, she's an accomplished tennis player. And Bill Yowd, congratulations to you both. And I'll leave you with this photo, Soph, from Creston. Thanks to Reg for that one. Beautiful shot of the sun. Well done, Reg. Thank you, Christy. Leftover pancakes and a dog home alone sparked some trouble over the weekend in Massachusetts. Home surveillance shows a golden retriever stealing the pancakes right off the stove. The plate topples after the snack, but the dog also hit the ignition button on the gas stove, and that started a fire. For the canine culprits, it was a good time to lay low on the couch. Fortunately, the alarm went off and firefighters arrived within minutes. Everyone was okay in the end. Pepsi is pushing back on reports that it's developing Doritos for women. The idea surfaced after, after the snack and beverage company CEO said women don't enjoy licking their fingers or crunching on chips in public. Those comments sparking a lady Dorito backlash. Here's Mike Trelay. Doritos scored a touchdown with its Super Bowl commercial. It was loud and full of testosterone. Everything you'd want during a football game. Flavor that brings the heat. But wow, that win was short-lived. Because the CEO of PepsiCo, which produces Doritos, mused on a podcast that women wanted their own chip. Uh, they don't like to crunch too loudly in public. And, uh, you know, they don't lick their fingers generously. Social media took note and publicly flogged the brand, leading to Lady Doritos headlines around the world. On Twitter, we've been through enough this year, wrote one woman. Has anyone at Doritos ever met a lady, wrote another. By the time PepsiCo tweeted, we already have Doritos for women, they're called Doritos, the damage was already done. Tone deaf really does sum it up. Um, it's just... It's, it's not as if Pepsi doesn't know their consumer. They have likely done studies and looked at how women and men eat snacks, and there probably are differences. Is this a Dorito for men and women? Absolutely. We took some bags to the streets where women were uh, not impressed. Oh, because I'm a woman. Exactly. Hey, all right. I don't need anyone to tell me what kind of chip I need. Their response is understandable because they've come to expect companies labeling products for her, like pens, guns, and power tools. Even Honda designed a car awkwardly called She's. It wasn't well-received. Do women want a different chip? Perhaps. But they're fine with the original, which this woman proved by eating an entire bag in 15 minutes. Crumbs and all. Electrolyte Global News, Toronto. Okay. Squire. I know what to get you for your birthday, a big bag of Doritos. Um, old Dutch barbecue. Old Dutch barbecue. Yeah. And Doritos to wash it sure, down. Sure, yeah. Okay, I'll good. Both of those. Mm, yummy. <laughs> um, the Canucks are on the road this week, starting in Miami, where people don't even want to pay $10 to watch a hockey game. There are probably more people at the bus stop outside the arena than there is inside this Florida Panthers game and most of their games at home. Unfortunately, the Canucks did not get to face their old friend Roberto Luongo. He is in the final stages of recovering from a groin injury. Instead, they face the magnificently named Harry Sateri, who's been on a bit of a roll of late. Canucks, Panthers, and nobody else. It's like a post-apocalyptic hockey crowd. There's hardly anybody there. Okay. Three on one, Sven Berchi stopped by Sateri. Off the pass from Brock Besser. 
keeps it scoreless. Other end, Jacob Markstrom. Facing down Alexander Barkov and Evgeny Dadnov. So, still 0-0. Power play goal coming up by Chris Tanev for the Panthers. Yes, it was an unfortunate stick here as Tanev knocks this one behind Markstrom. McGinn will get the goal on the score sheet, but it really was Tanev who did the work for him. Okay, Louis Erickson, Thomas Vanek back to Gagne, open net, but cleared away at the very last second by the Panthers. Florida on the power play, now the puck's going the other way, it's Marcus Granlin, hasn't scored an 18 straight. Drought is over. Short-handed goal. Canucks tie it 1-1. In his equipment, but he pulled But then Ben Hutton, who has struggled all year, struggles again. Alexander Barkov around Hutton. Gabranson was caught up ice as well. 2-1 at that point, and that's the score now in the third period. 2-1 Florida over the Canucks. All right, big battle tonight in Toronto. Kyrie Irving and the Celtics against the Raptors. It's 1-2 and two in the East. Raptors are two games behind the Celtics. Look at this. Pascal Siakam on the alley-oop from DeLon Wright. Wraps up 58-37 at the break. Lowry, DeRozan, easy win for Toronto. 20 over Boston. Only one game back in the Eastern Conference. The Raptors could be the Eastern Conference reps in the finals this year. It's very possible. Okay. Among the figure skaters heading to the Olympics to skate for Canada is Coquitlam's Larkin Osman. Now, we have featured her before on this show, but she deserves another visit on the night before she heads off to her first ever Olympic Games. At the Coquitlam Skating Club, Larkin Ostman is already a legend. A third place finish at the Canadians this year won her a ticket to South Korea, which will be her second time on Olympic ice. Her first was 2010. Well, in 2010, I was the flower retriever for the Olympics, the ladies short and long, and the ice dance free. But I didn't particularly understand or even think that I could ever be on that level. But as her coach will tell you, blossoming from the one who picks up the flowers to the one who has the flowers thrown to them was not easy. You know, it was a tough time of growing when she was 15, 16 years old, when she was the junior Canadian champion, and everybody thought that it's going to be just going up. And boy, instead of going up, it went a little bit down. But boy, did she come back, and you have to admire her, what, what she achieved within last two and a half, three years. Just even to have the word Olympian attached to your name is like, this. it was always this thing in my brain that I never really thought about because I didn't know if I would ever be able to accomplish that. But those around Larkin knew she could get on the Olympic stage if her confidence caught up with her talent. Uh, you cannot, probably you have to learn it through the experiences. Convince yourself. Doesn't matter how somebody else will convince you that you are good. But I think she is starting to realize how good she is. And she also realizes that this Olympic Games is only part of her trip up the ladder in the skating world. I'm not going there to win a gold medal. I mean, 
that's everyone's goal, but I, I am realistic. So I think that I'm just going to go and have my experience and then hope for the best and then help, uh, try and qualify for the next one as well. Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels was supposed to be the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts and a few hours before they were going to announce it. Now I'm going to stay with New England. So oh. there you go. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks very much, Squire. Over 294 centimeters, grouse to 60, Cypress 365, and Sasquatch 289. Revelstoke a base of 263, Manning Park 190 with 10 new, Powder King at 249 base and Mount Washington 228. Southern Interior Mountains include Big White at a base of 258 centimeters, Silver Star 250, Sun Peaks 214, and Apex 230. Coming up on ET Canada, details on all of this year's Juno nominations, and we sit down with this year's Oscar nominees in L.A., plus Cheryl's backstage with Headley just before they hit the stage in Abbotsford. That's coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Sophie. Thank you very much, sir. The world's most powerful rocket and the biggest to fly since the Apollo moon mission nailed its maiden test flight today. The launch of SpaceX Heavy Falcon rocket, as it's known, and its jaw-dropping landing was a dream come true for billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk and an historic moment in the future of space travel. Under a perfect Florida blue sky, yet another of billionaire Elon Musk's dreams roared to life today. The SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket with 27 engines thundering off the same launch pad that for decades sent Apollo and shuttle missions into space. This time an unmanned mission to prove three rockets tied together could work in perfect synchrony, break the Earth's gravitational pull, and head for a journey into deep space. SpaceX Mission Control near Los Angeles, euphoric. And in a stroke of engineering genius, this. Two of the three rockets returned safely to Earth for reuse. Setting off sonic booms as they broke through the atmosphere and hit their targets side by side. It really feels like we've got a shot at going back to the moon, going to Mars, and reviving the spirit of exploration that was Apollo. And um, that was one of the things that got me so excited as a kid. In Florida, the gathered crowds could feel the thunder in the sky. It must be experienced live. I can't, um, yeah, it's just, ah! I see these all the time. This is the best one. By far. This is opening the door to a new future of spaceflight for the human race. Tonight, this spectacular shot of Musk's own cherry red Tesla with a dummy named Starman, don't panic on the dashboard, headed for a solar orbit, and David Bowie playing in a forever loop.